0: podcast number 472 for December 13th, 2015. This week, despite the appeal of online music streaming services, there's still a valid reason to have an MP3 player application on your computer. If you're thinking of learning a new language or refreshing your knowledge of a language, the free Duolingo service would be a great place to start. In short circuits, some people are trying to avoid having their computers updated to Windows 10. If you're in that group, I have some tips that may help. The 2016 version of Acronis True Image Backup comes with several new features. And in spare parts, only on the website. There's an increasing demand for video conferencing, but the technology still faces some significant challenges. And Microsoft has released information about this year's top searches on Bing. Music streaming is popular. The most popular choices are Amazon, Beats, Deezer, Google Play, Grooveshark, iTunes Radio, Mixcloud, MySpace Music, Pandora Radio, Slacker Radio, Sony Music Unlimited, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Xbox Music, and even YouTube. In fact, Wikipedia lists 57 music streaming services. Some are no longer in operation. Of those that are still running, not all offer a free option. Some are available only in specific countries or regions. Some are available only on a single platform, while others have apps for all major operating systems and mobile devices. With all those choices, why would anyone need an MP3 player on their computer? Well, good reasons exist, Maybe you just prefer to be completely in charge of your own music. Or you don't want to burn bandwidth on streaming audio. Or you don't like the commercial interruptions in free services and you aren't willing to pay a fee to remove the commercials. Whatever. In that case, you need an MP3 player. The go-to MP3 player used to be Winamp. It is still available, even though the application is no longer being developed, and you can't get it from the Winamp website. Reports persist that Winamp will be back someday, but if you go to the Winamp website, it's currently a dead end. So how about the Windows Media Player? About the best I can say about the Windows Media Player is that it's already installed with Windows, and it's free. Comparing the Media Player to any other application is kind of like comparing Microsoft Paint to Adobe Photoshop. Windows 10 users can obtain the Groove player from Microsoft. Previously, it was called Xbox Music and also called Zune Music. Groove is a streaming service that comes with a reasonably good player application. It can be downloaded for free from the Windows Store. The downside is that Groove will repeatedly attempt to convince you to enroll in the paid service. The iTunes player, of course, is free and nearly essential if you have any portable Apple music devices. There are ways to get music onto an iPod without iTunes, but the methods aren't exactly straightforward. I have experienced so many iTunes disasters that I won't even consider installing it on any computer that I own. MediaMonkey can sync music on iOS devices. That makes it a good choice if you have an iPod. The free version is a good music player, but most users probably will want the paid version. That's because it includes smart playlists and automatic library organization. I have the paid version, but recently I've been using MusicBee. Like WinAmp, MusicBee can easily handle large libraries. It also supports plugins, including those designed for WinAmp, and it can automatically retrieve lyrics for songs and allow users to create smart playlists. Then there's FUBAR two thousand. It wins the tiny footprint prize. Installed, it's just three megabytes. Its feature set is a bit limited, but it can be customized so that users can add features such as audio encoding and more versatile playback controls. VLC is an outstanding video player, but it's also a decent music player. If you're already using VLC for movies and you don't want a separate application for music, give it a try. You'll find download links for nearly all of those programs on the Techfighter Worldwide website this week. It's been a long time since I was able to read, write, or speak Russian with even minimal proficiency. That's one of the reasons I've been watching the online language teacher Duolingo, waiting for the promised Russian lessons. Well, Russian is now available in beta. It's a promising offering, and because the alphabet differs from what English uses, it's giving me the opportunity to investigate Windows as a multi-language operating system. The organization's motto is, We believe everyone should have access to education of the highest quality for free. About 50 people work for the Pittsburgh-based company Duolingo. It was started by a couple of PhDs, Louis von Ahn and Severin Hacker. Currently, there are some 100 million subscribers who are learning languages ranging from Danish and French to Spanish and Turkish, and Russian, of course. There are also courses that teach English to native speakers of many other languages. The Duolingo website says that an independent study by professors from the City University of New York and the University of South Carolina found that using Duolingo for 34 hours is the equivalent of one university semester of language instruction. The online materials can be used in conjunction with classroom instruction and users select their own pace, all the way from extremely slow to insanely fast. I got started over the Thanksgiving holiday and tried testing out at the basic level. No such luck. At least I remembered the full alphabet, all 33 letters, instead of the 26 available in English. The lessons jump from asking the student to translate words or phrases that are spoken and shown on the screen to typing what you hear or translating spoken or written English into Russian. How does one type Russian using an English keyboard? Well, there are ways, and I'll tell you about those in a little bit, but the ingenious thing about the lessons is that they recognize transliterations. The user can type P-A-P-A and Duolingo recognizes it as Papa. When Duolingo uses a word for the first time, you probably won't know what it is, so you can guess... If you're right, you'll be rewarded for getting the correct answer. If not, you'll be shown the right answer, and Duolingo will work the term into the lesson several more times. Or, don't guess. New words are clearly indicated, and you can hover the mouse over them for some clues. The Russian lessons, as I mentioned, are in beta, so they're not available on mobile devices, and you'll occasionally find something that's a little bit puzzling. In one case, I typed the translation to a Russian phrase, this is my backpack, Tim, and that was exactly the correct answer. Duolingo said I got it almost right. But even minor errors like that are pretty rare. There's also the question of trying to teach Windows to be multilingual. Being able to have transliterations understood is fine, but being able to type in Cyrillic characters seemed to be a better way to learn the language. I found a couple of ways to accomplish this. Both are easy to set up. One is a lot easier to use than the other. Using the language section of the Windows Control Panel, you can install a new language and keyboard layout. This is extremely easy. But then you have to find out where the keys are on the keyboard. Keep in mind, Russian has 33 characters compared to 26 in the Latin alphabet used by English so I needed a keyboard template. I accomplished that by opening a picture of my keyboard in Adobe Photoshop. I blanked out all the letters on the keys and then added the Russian characters. This isn't particularly difficult either, it took less than an hour to accomplish, but the Russian layout rarely places letters that sound like their English equivalents on the same key. The Russian K sound is on the English R key. The Russian N sound, that's the one that looks like an H in English, is actually on the English Y key. The T and M sounds are on N and V. And then there are all those letters that have no English equivalent like Tse, Ya, Sh, Sh, sh and Zh. And also the Miaki's knock, or soft side. Using the Russian keyboard layout may not be the best option, unless you want to master touch typing in Russian maybe Google has a better idea. Google Input makes it possible to type transliterations in English. In other words, I could type "ya не русский and have Google return the true Russian spelling. The advantage is that you don't need to train your fingers to use the Russian keyboard layout, but you'll still see the Russian spellings on screen instead of transliterations. So if your goal is to learn how to read and write the language, I think that's probably a better way to go. Oh, and by the way, in case you were wondering, what I said there was I'm not a Russian spy. I have installed both support for the Russian keyboard and for Google's Russian input. Switching between the various systems is easy, just the Windows key and a spacebar toggles through the options, so one moment I'm able to type in English and then switch instantly so that I can type poruski. One of the first things I noticed about the Duolingo approach is that it doesn't spend a lot of time explaining how nouns are declined in Russian. Many languages have nouns that are considered to be masculine, feminine, or neuter. This is not a concept of English. To make the situation even more complex, the nouns vary in form depending on whether they're acting as the subject of the sentence, the object, or one of several other possibilities. Instead of explaining this, the program simply uses the nouns in their proper forms. Something else that was clear from the beginning is that Duolingo uses terms that haven't yet been introduced to the student. These become clear in context. I remembered enough from my classes 30 years ago to recognize yeast as the third-person singular verb for eat. When I didn't remember a word, it appeared in several subsequent interactions so that I would begin to recognize it. This strikes me as an intelligent teaching method, one that mimics the way people learn language as children. So if you're looking to learn or refresh a language, check out Duolingo. In short circuits, are you desperately trying to avoid Windows 10? Some people are. I don't really understand this, but there are some actions you can take if you're in that group. Although Microsoft will eventually force the issue, it is possible to forestall the change. No method exists within Windows 7 or 8 to turn off updates that will eventually lead to Windows 10, unless you want to turn off all updates, including security updates, something that most security experts say is not a wise thing to do. Changing the update policy to download but not install updates might work if you're willing to examine each and every update that arrives to determine whether you want it or not. The problem with this is that it's sometimes difficult to comprehend the update description unless you have experience as an operating system developer. Another option I've heard about but haven't tried is a third-party application that claims to block Windows 10. I haven't tried it, as I said, because I have no computers that I want to maintain on an outdated operating system. The GWX control panel probably writes changes to the registry, so creating a restore point would be prudent before installing it or using it. You'll find a link to the GWX control panel on the TechByter Worldwide website. The process may already be started, though. If you have a .bt folder in the root directory of the boot drive, then the update process has started and you'll need to take some additional steps. The directory, $windows.tildebt, is a hidden directory, so the Windows File Explorer won't show it to you. You can determine whether it's there or not by opening a command window, making sure you're in the root directory of the boot drive, and then typing cd $windows.tildebt and pressing enter. Those instructions are spelled out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If the command prompt changes to show you that you're in that Windows-BT tilde directory, then of course it's there. Addictive Tips has some suggestions for dealing with the update process if the directory exists. Again, I haven't done this myself, but the instructions written by Fatima Wahab appear to be complete and correct. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. If nothing has yet downloaded and you previously reserved Windows 10, You might be able to head that off by following the reservation cancellation procedure. It's described on the super site for Windows. You'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website also. Some people have told me that they're waiting for Microsoft to eliminate all of the operating system's bugs. Well, they're going to have an exceptionally long wait. Bugs are present in all software, and they always will be. The most serious ones have been resolved and the ongoing preview program that distributes fast ring and slow ring updates to volunteers help Microsoft find and resolve problems before the general release is pushed out. As with other software publishers, Adobe for example, the trend is toward agile development which creates faster release cycles. My primary computer remains on the Windows 10 general release, The notebook I use for emergency backup is on the Fast Ring Preview release, and the Surface tablet is still on the General Release. I'm thinking about moving it to the Fast Ring. Provider, Acronis, has announced an update to the Acronis True Image Cloud and Acronis True Image 2016. Improvements are based on customer feedback, the company says, and reflect a growing demand for the ability to move data from desktop and notebook computers, smartphones, and tablets to the cloud. Acronis General Manager, Gaidar Maganyorov says that the two top problems users face are damaged or lost devices and running out of disk space on their devices. Magdanirov says the latest Acronis True Image makes it easier than ever for the family IT manager to protect multiple devices and keep all their precious photos and data safe. Acronis True Image Cloud includes unlimited cloud storage for backups and a dashboard so that one person can manage the backup and recovery for all PCs, Macs, and smartphones or tablets that run Windows, iOS, or Android. I described the previous version of Acronis in October. You'll find a link to that report on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. I found it to be a highly usable system that provides block-level copying of data for disk image backups. These are ones that can be restored if a local hard drive crashes. You also get file and directory backups primarily used for data. The restore function allows users to restore a full image backup to new PCs or Mac computers, including to dissimilar hardware and then migrate the complete operating system applications and data over to the new disk or computer. The try and decide feature offers a way to safely test new software, new drivers, new system configurations, with the ability to roll back to a previous system configuration if something doesn't work out quite the way you hoped it would. Acronis True Image Cloud with unlimited cloud storage for one computer and up to three devices costs $100 a year. Three computers and up to 10 devices can be backed up for $160 a year, and backup for 5 computers and 15 devices is $200 a year. For those who need only local backup and restore, the price is $50 for a single computer, $80 for 3 computers, $100 for 5 computers. For more information, check out the Acronis website. And for spare parts, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, because spare parts is only on the website. There is an increasing demand for video conferencing, but the technology still faces some significant challenges, and Microsoft has released some information about this year's top searches on Bing. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.